Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame, and you got the, and there's a... Now that's a follow-up question, Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow-up question right there. If you can be physical, and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or, or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune, and ND Insider. This is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold and ND Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for ND Insider and the South Bend Tribune. The Irish took care of business in Phil Dracovic's revenge game and beat their former quarterback 45-31 in Chestnut Hill. Now the Irish are settling into a much-deserved off week before hitting the road to play North Carolina the day after Thanksgiving. Uh, But the off week didn't start well with reports Monday that starting center Jarrett Patterson will miss the rest of the season because of a left foot injury. Offensive line coach Jeff Quinn will need to prepare a backup to step into what will be an important role for the Irish as they chase a spot in the college football playoff. To discuss the challenge facing Zeke Carell, Colin Grunhard, and maybe even Josh Lug, we invited former Notre Dame guard and center Bob Morton back onto the podcast. Bob, thanks for joining us. Well, Tyler, thanks so much for having me. It's, uh, it's good to be with you guys today. Just to start, how big of a blow do you think it is losing Jared Patterson and how well was he playing for the Irish? Well, I, I think beyond just his position in the center of the line, um, you look at the, the way the offensive line has performed really as they've hit their stride um, this middle part of the year. And uh, taking any one of those five away would have been, would have been a pretty big blow. Uh, not to mention his play this year has really stuck out to me uh, as having uh, been really reliable, solid, aggressive, um, you know, defining blocks in the run game, you know, years past, we've had a great guard and tackle combination, uh, but, but seeing him involved more play side and uh, springing some of those holes for a running game has, uh, has been a lot of fun for me as someone who snapped the ball a little bit in my career. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a blow losing uh, any lineman. It's a blow losing a veteran. It's a blow losing your center. And, and just the way he was playing, it just takes a little bit of wind out of your sails to, to know that some, you know, somebody who's playing as good as anybody else on the team right now uh, isn't going to be lining up with you for the rest of the season. Well, Bob, you know, we know that so much of offensive line play is seeing things through a common lens. And if you're a backup and usually working with the twos for this deep end of the season, I, don't, I can't remember – it, it always seemed like you were starting to me, either a guard or center. I'm sure you were back up at some point and, and made the jump up. But how difficult is that with a different group? Because you're used to 
being with that same set of five people, um, how difficult is the chemistry uh, or, or are we are may, maybe overstating that a little bit given, uh, you know, that he's been on the team all year, but, but just not with those other four guys? Uh, yeah, you know, so my experience was after my freshman year where I was, uh, even though Notre Dame terms it differently, essentially redshirting, uh, letting Jeff Fain keep his starting job for a year. Uh, after, after that first year, I was always operating with the ones, whether at center or guard, um, you know, was, was always operating with the same five or six people any given year. We did, however, you know, my sophomore and junior year have a lot of turnover, right? We saw guys in and out of the games trying to play with lineups. And the one thing I'll say is when you have different people coming in and out of games throughout the course of a game or season is people do things differently, right? And, and on paper, it looks the same. And maybe even to the untrained eye, you know, uh, 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 a double team to a linebacker looks the same, but uh, the presence that somebody comes in with their left shoulder to join your right shoulder, uh, it, it can affect your footwork just a little bit differently because people's steps feel a little different. So, uh, you know, Patterson had a way of, uh, of taking over blocks or working with his guards uh, that will feel different regardless of, of who comes in after him. And for a lot of uh, times, that's, that's not that big of an adjustment. But if there was just some subtle um, ways that the guards handed things off on the, the front side to let Jared take over a block, if there was, you know, a certain bit of uh, handing off in pass protection, that can be different when you're dealing with a, a different sized body, somebody who might be a quarter of a step slow, even whose eyes may not be exactly where they need to be because they haven't gotten those first team reps. So there are some differences. I would, I would trust the, the number six and seven guys on our offensive line to be able to make that adjustment over the course of a couple weeks. But it is going to be a point of focus for this offensive line to make sure that you're not creating another Jarrett Patterson, but you're creating the next best five with whoever that center position is going to be. Uh, the two guys that have played center in games for Notre Dame so far beyond Patterson are Zeke Carell and Colin Grunhard. Um, Zeke being a former four-star recruit who's a sophomore and Colin being a former walk-on who earned his way to a scholarship and uh, um, has, is a senior, so he's been in the program a while and was, was essentially the backup behind Patterson last season. So in, in my opinion, it's sort of – and I'm not expecting you to know a, a ton about how they play because I think we're still trying to figure that out. Uh, but it seems sort of like – Part of the decision could be whether you put in a more talented guy who has less experience in Zeke Carell, or if you feel more confident in leaning on a veteran guy that may not have the same kind of athleticism. What do you think is more important in a situation like this? Uh, you know, I think it really depends on, on uh, what you think the risk factors are, right? I think that there's risk in every decision. So, not not using names, but I think you you kind of put it. You've got um, you've got a, a higher caliber four star recruit that's got a a heck of a lot of upside, but is somewhat untested. And you've got a player who's been through the ringer a little bit, who's definitely more maybe battle tested, battle hardened, but may not have that kind of upside um, that uh, that your younger player would. I think that the difficulty is you want to play to win every game. Right. And so you want to win these games through the rest of the regular season. So you want to make sure that you don't have too big of a learning curve for your younger player for Carell in this instance. 
But at the same time, you're also going to get to the end of the year where you're going to be playing the likes of Clemson or other top four teams potentially at the end of the year. And if you can get your four-star high upside recruit um, to, to learn quickly, then all of a sudden you've got someone who can hopefully handle themselves against the best of the best where there might be limitations by moving someone else to the position. And so uh, I, I, it's, I mean, it sounds like my mind is made up, but it's really not. Like you really have to look at each week um, as an opportunity to do two things, secure the victory and also prepare yourself for the harder games down the road. And you've got to have a mix of that decision to figure out what direction you're going to go. Bob, I don't know. I'm trying to remember. Are you 6'4"? Six, 6'4", four? Six, four. yep. Okay. So so the options here are also kind of interesting in that Lug is 6'7", Corral is 6'3", and Colin Grunhardt is 6'1". Is there, you know, and their weights are pretty comparable. Colin's a little bit lighter than the other two, but is there an advantage to being either taller or not 6'7"? playing the center position. Obviously at tackle, you like the tall guys, but what about interior? Yeah, so, I mean, back in, in 2002 when I was coming to Notre Dame, a 6'4", 6'5", center was unheard of. I mean, you were talking 6'1", to 6'3", you hid the small guys with, you know, snapping the ball, and, and that really changed in the early 2000s to where we just became a, a, a guard who touched the football. We, be, you know, we became a, a more skilled guard, if you will. And, uh, and so... You know, to I would say six seven is way too tall. There's no way. But the fact of the matter is, like, if if you have good body control, uh, if you're able to protect yourself as you're snapping the ball, uh, there's nothing to say that six seven is is too tall. Uh, I think the the question is not so much height for me when you're on the interior, um, especially at center. You're not dealing with somebody who can keep distance from you and rush the outside, which you can see as a guard from time to time. Um, what you really have to worry about is, you know, at your size frame, are you able to uh, have quick enough hands to get them on the person across from you? And are you strong enough to not get pushed directly back into the lap of the quarterback? If you, if, if your lighter frame uh, gets pushed back in, into 12, we're, we're going we're gonna to have a really tough rest of the season because uh, he, Ian has been operating really, really well with a really well-defined pocket. And we want to keep that defined pocket and the bottom of that pocket or the top, depending on your direction, is the center position. And so you need somebody who, um, regardless of height, is able to, to, to stop and not give too much ground. Bob, is the, is the challenge greater or lesser being the, the new guy uh, on the offensive line as a center when you're surrounded by guys that have been doing this for years, when you got veterans that – all along the offensive line and certainly at, at, at quarterback, is it is there more pressure? Is it more difficult to sort of get on the same page as those guys because they're so used to working with someone else? Or is it going to be easier because they can kind of pick up the slack for you and, and help ease you into it? Yeah, you know, so this is, this is my perception. And this is not to knock any other position in football. But, you know, it might be hard if you're like a third or fourth receiver or if you're the second or third tight end or if you're, you know, you know a, a one of the other groups on the team. But as an offensive line – we don't exist as just one out of five. We exist as five, right? And so um, if you are a brand new player, whether you're a fourth or fifth year player or a first or second year player, stepping onto this uh, so far really accomplished offensive line, 
those four are not going to leave you out to dry because their success as an offensive line depends greatly on your success. And so I would say uh, the hardest thing is not psyching yourself up to be, but to have to be perfect. I have to be as good as everybody else. You're not going to be, you haven't seen the same reps that everybody else has. So you be as good as you can be. And every single day you make up more ground. So you study one hour longer, you do four more reps, like you, you take care of your body so that you can hopefully when, when it, when the game at the end of the year is on the line, you know, we look at you not as a rookie, not as the one out of five that isn't as experienced, but we look at this as another hugely experienced offensive line with a center now that, that gained all of the experience in the back half of this year, because those two guards are going to help bring whoever is there along this season. Somebody just needs to want to and not get too psyched out at the position that they're in. Bob, if you're a, an opposing defensive coordinator, do you go after that center? Do you test him and see if he's the weakest link? Uh, even if you maybe don't have the personnel that's elite. For example, uh, you know, there's Wake Forest has a really good defensive end. They don't have the interior guys. I don't think North Carolina has the interior guys nor Syracuse. Clemson does. So when and, and those guys will be healthy when they play Notre Dame again. So what would your strategy be as the D coordinator? Would you try to go after the center and, and test them and see if there's a weak link there? Yeah. So my my it was my sophomore or junior year, maybe we played at Boston College at home. Uh, Matthias Kiwanuka was on the other team. I actually listened to a podcast that Brady Quinn did. And uh, in terms of the scariest players he ever went against, he talked about Matthias Kiwanuka because of this one play. Um, they were in an odd defense. Matthias was way out wide. And my job as the guard at the time was to step in and help on the nose guard and look to the linebacker. Well, when I looked to the linebacker, he wasn't there. And so I took my next read, which was outside, and I was late getting over to Matthias. And Matthias took his 6'8 frame and hit me square underneath the, the chest protector on my left side and drove me right in front of Brady, who was able to, like, slide left and complete the pass. But listen, everybody I've talked to about that game, uh, all they seem to remember is me getting destroyed by Matthias Kiwanuka. And I tell you that because for the rest of the year, even teams that played even defenses would get in that exact defensive alignment and try and bring the end to me because I had screwed up so badly on that one play. <laughs> wow. So defensive coordinators, of course, are going to pick certain moments on second or third down, depending on our tendencies, and do something that will maybe not like just put a really big guy on the center. That's sometimes really easy. They're going to test the eye discipline, and they're going to test the mental readiness of a new lineman and give them something that they haven't seen before. It might be really easy for an experienced lineman but it's something that a new center might forget that his read goes nose tackle, linebacker, defensive end. And if he's late with his eyes, it could blow up an entire play. So, uh, yeah, you'll see defenses do some uncharacteristic things, but that might look different than just lining somebody up on, on top of them. Yeah, what, what is that challenge of going up against a, a heads-up nose guard 
that's lined up directly across from the center versus maybe a shade guy. Is, it, is, it, is the challenge that much more difficult for, especially for, for a center making his first start? Uh, you know, I think when you're dealing with that straight up nose, the, what you're dealing with is one of three things, right? That player's either going to play through you, which is less likely, or the player's going to play to your right or to your left. So when you have someone who's lined up in gaps, everything protection-wise takes care of itself. Everybody takes the gap to their left, essentially, with some nuance. But when you have somebody who's head up, do you treat that person as if they're on your left or on your right? It can change protection-wise. If, if the center is going to be calling protections and calling out kind of defensive alignments, you know, it's going to be harder for a young center to, to get on board with that. Although, you know, I'm assuming all of these centers are training, but when the game's on the line, you're going to want – you're going to want somebody with a little more experience having some feedback, whether one of the guards, whether that, I mean, offensive line called it back in my day. Right. But, you know, maybe your quarterback's a little more involved. Um, but uh, I, I think, you know, the, the, the job on every single play, you have a set assignment. And I think the center has to snap the ball and work through his assignments and they're going to have to do it faster than they have been in practice. And so if you can have somebody, break it down to those simplistic ways of snap the ball, work through my assignments every play. You're going to see somebody who is going to improve play by play through the end of the year, no matter who it is. And, and hopefully, you know, be, be, a, 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 be one fifth of the greatest offensive line in the country. Okay. You just said greatest offensive line in the country. There's been a lot of people that have said that phrase about this group. I'm wondering if you think, believe that you know let's say Jarrett Patterson was still playing do you believe that they are the best and number two is do you think that there's anybody individually playing at an all-american level who would you single out on the line as having the best years so far you know when we've had amazing offensive lines um at least since since my time there you know I, I just think of we've had a dominant side Right. And obviously the, the picture perfect example of that is McGlinchey and Nelson on the left side. You knew that we were going to run to the left side the majority of the time. And when we ran to the right side, we were probably going to pull those guys over to the right. We <laughs> did, you just knew you were going to follow those guys. What I love about our offensive line is to me, I, I've spent a little bit more time trying to watch the offense in motion, partly because I love watching Kyron Williams run the ball, uh, maybe more than any running back I've seen in a long time. Um, what I love is I think that you'll have an all-American offensive lineman, and I don't know who it's going to be simply because our offensive line has been so dominant. Um, when you're running the stretch as effectively as we are, where you, you know, break 65 yards against Clemson in the second play of the game, uh, when you're able to get four yards in a cloud of rubberized pellets, when you need to get four yards in a cloud of rubberized pellets, like – when, when you're able to, and you're protecting Ian Book, I mean, the, the first week or two, to me, it seemed like the quarterback pressures that we were seeing were more um, some of the skill positions not getting to their blocking assignments quick enough for 12 to feel secure in his pocket. But the offensive line's been pass protecting really well, which has been a mark going back several years. I think the tackles have been um, phenomenal. I, I haven't seen a lot of edge pressure that uh, that I really blame them for. And and I'll say this: I think the the guards uh, you you can't you can't skimp out on what the guards are doing because the stretch play has been so successful, and they're just not allowing that kind of penetration. So 
I don't, I don't know any individual that I'd say, you've got to go ahead and, and give that guy a medal as an All-American. Give it to them all the way they're playing. I, I just could not be more thrilled with the identity of our offense when we really lean on what we do well. Bob, to step back from the offensive line specifically for a second, what, Notre Dame has, has finals this week, and it happens to be their off week as well. I'm curious how beneficial that is for, for Notre Dame, and is there any concern of maybe – losing focus during an off week when you have finals? You know, I, I think finals is usually an opportunity to do two things, right? It's to physically rest and recover, rejuvenate. And um, it, it's also to, to like separate your brain from the, the absolute like focus of getting ready for Saturday. You're still getting ready for your next opponent, right? But you're able to, whether it's, you know, you're, you're working on fun trick plays that you're never, ever going to use in a game or um, you're watching practice and you're letting the twos and threes and the AYOs, the all you others get their practice reps, you know, at scrimmaging towards the end. Um, if there's, if there is a time to have finals, it's during a bye week. So you can allow some of that mental kind of focus to really uh, show up, you know, on, on the books and on the tests and the papers that you've got to turn in. Um, this year obviously is different, right? Like there isn't a day that goes by that there isn't an intense focus on keeping distance from people and staying healthy and getting tested and doing all of these things. And so uh, I think recognizing that we are asking a lot of student athletes nationwide, but at Notre Dame, I can speak to, to that example. We're asking so much from them that this so it, this bye week isn't like a time off for them. They're not really disconnecting. They still got to do all the things they need to do, but the intense focus on the next opponent gets lessened. And then the, the intense focus on finishing their class as well, it kind of fills that spot. So it, it really is a perfect environment to have that bye week. Bob, last question from me is I know that uh, uh, you're not in the meeting rooms and so forth, but there's, there you know, even though this is, is the Brian Kelly offense, it feels so different under Tommy Reese than it did under Chip Long, especially when it comes to offensive line play. And I'm wondering, do you see those differences? Can you kind of sense that maybe the chemistry is better between Reese and Quinn than it was between Quinn and Long? Or, or, or can you make that assumption without being in the meeting room? Yeah, you know, I think that um... – I, I can't make that assumption without being in the meeting room, but I will say um, Tommy Reese as an offensive coordinator is much closer to an offensive lineman's dream than I experienced with previous play callers. Um, you know, I, the, 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 the play call that I remember most from Chip Long was everything looked like kind of a, a draw handoff. I would think Dexter Williams sliding over, getting the ball, trying to make one or two people miss in the hole and then taking off. And it was successful, but, but it wasn't really um, – it didn't seem like five guys really getting off the ball with purpose all the time. And then in the bowl game last year, um, something that I'd been – I mean, Eric, you might have either heard me say it or we might have talked about it. All I wanted to see was Ian Book in pistol formation or under center, give me Tommy Tremble offset – and then follow Tommy Tremble wherever he goes. You want to talk about unsung hero of this team. Like Tommy Tremble, when he's the lead blocker, changes the math on what your football team is going to do that play. 
And they started running the stretch run um, following Tommy Tremble, and it set up play action that was wide open. When, when the offense started to get going in the bowl game, all of my offensive linemen that are in contact started pinging back and forth with text saying, this could get interesting, meaning for this year. Um, there have been times that I feel like we've gotten into the shotgun and we, we haven't had a whole lot of running identity. But when uh, there comes a point in time when we need to string some plays together, Ian Book kind of goes under center. Um, or, uh, or Tommy Tremble kind of comes in as a lead blocker and we start running that stretch run play. And to me, that's the core strand of the DNA of this offense. So many other things are coming together, right? Um, and, and so many kind of offensive weapons are starting to wake up, but we needed to figure out like, what, what are we going to do against anybody and a stretch run where 23 or 25 or 20 can plant their foot in the ground to get north and south somewhere around the tackle tight end extended box <clears throat> is, is, is the DNA that our team needs. And it'll be successful against any defense that we go against in the country. Bob, we've talked a lot about the offensive line, so I'm going to take that option off the table. Outside of the offensive line, what has impressed you the most about the Irish so far this season? Um, I think the, I mean, <laughs> take the offensive line off the table. You probably should take the offense off the table because for me, I would just go, you know, give me the offensive line extended, right? Give me those tight ends, right? I mean, Tommy Tremble would be the, the single individual player, even though his tight end mate, Mayer, is, uh, I don't think I'll ever forget when he caught like the four yard crosser and turned the corner a couple games ago and realized that this, this, this kid can run and hit and jump and, I'm just glad we have him for a couple more years. I think um, defensively, I have been uh, thrilled with how we've held together when certain individuals have been in and out. Um, I just don't – I feel like there have been times we've maybe had a couple of single-play collapses over the course of the game. But now we're, we're on two-plus years now of Clark Lee being the single best coach coming out of halftime with adjustments – and our defense never, ever, ever fails uh, to uh, to show up to to finish a game. Uh, so I've been real, I've been thrilled with our defensive ends. Um, I would not want to try and block them myself. Uh, I've been really happy with um, with how our linebackers I think have been as advertised and improving. And uh, and man, I mean Kyle Hamilton is is one of those players that uh, will, will go down kind of in the history books at Notre Dame, just the, the way he plays. Um, it, it, I mean, it, it still shocks me, the caliber of some of the athletes that we have, uh, not because we don't deserve to have them, but because I think there are people who are just challenging what we expect certain positions to do. And having that, that stretch of that position happen in South Bend is fun. So that's a, I basically said everybody. So I've been impressed with, with just about everybody, Tyler. And, and not like in a, this means Notre Dame is going to just trounce. I don't think that's it. But I just, to me, uh, as somebody who I naturally have what I call a realistic outlook, sometimes I can be a little pessimistic in terms of what Notre Dame's chances are over the course of the year. Um, I mean, I really, I really feel like this team has made me shut up. Like I just enjoy what I'm watching and there's always somebody, you know, to make a play, whether it's six, seven, or nine on defense, whether it's 12, 23, you know, 87, 11 on offense. 
they're just a lot of fun people to, to, to watch. And I'm going to enjoy watching them, you know, finish out Saturdays and then play some on Sundays too. Well, thanks a lot, Bob. That's all we have for you. We really appreciate you taking time to talk to us and, and uh, share some of your insight. Yeah, I always enjoy it. Thanks so much, guys, for having me. We'll get back to the podcast in a moment, but first, a word from Coors Light. Hey, Fighting Irish fans, how do you chill out each week? There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies, a perfect moment to unwind in our busy lives. If your game is on, or any game for that matter, reach for Coors Light and that mountain cold refreshment. When you want to chill out, flip through the channels and crack open a cold Coors Light. Each week, the games are getting more and more important. Make sure your refrigerator is stocked up with the one that is made to chill, Coors Light. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door at get.coorslight.com. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. All right, now it's time for Place Your Bets. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? This is our segment dedicated to the degenerates. Let's make some prop bets for the rest of the season. First one I have for us, Eric, is over under seven and a half touchdown passes for Ian Book in the next three games. Well, you know, when you look at Wake Forest, Syracuse, and North Carolina, their pass efficiency defenses aren't as bad as you'd think. They're all in the 40s. Um, a lot of that, they do give up a lot of yards and some touchdowns. A lot of the reasons why they're not lower is because they get a lot of interceptions too. But when I look at, you know, Ian's stats for the year, 11 touchdown passes in eight games, for him to get eight and three, I just think Notre Dame likes to run it in um, when they're close. And, and I think it's going to be easier for them to run it in against those three teams. So I'm going to say under. All right. I, I'm i going to go with over. I, I think because Ian is, has such a hot hand, I don't think they want to get too far away from that. And obviously they're not going to force themselves into throwing situations where they could just run the ball in and stuff like that. But I think they want you want to keep his confidence high. And I don't know that it's probably ever been as high as it is right now. Um, and so I think the development of the receivers um, is something that can lead to more success. Um, if Ben Tironic can play anything like what he played against Boston College, that makes the red zone issues a little bit more easier. Um, so I, I just think that we've seen a lot of growth in this offense, and I think some of the red zone passing will, will continue to grow as well. Um, so I think he will get over seven and a half touchdown passes in the next three games. Next one is over under 275 rushing yards for Kyron Williams in the next three games. Well, if he gets his average, he would be over that. Um, and North Carolina, Wake Forest, and Syracuse are not good rushing defense teams. North Carolina is the best of the bunch. Syracuse is 110th, and Wake Forest is 83rd. Uh, so there will be opportunities. The thing is, how much tread do they want to put on his tires? That's the only question. Right. Um, but the North Carolina game, they're going to need him the whole game. And I think he's going to be well over 100 yards in just that game alone. So I'm going to say, yes, he's going to go over that. Yeah, I'm going to go over as well. I had the same sort of concern of that maybe they're probably going to lean on him a lot against North Carolina, and then maybe they sort of ease up on him against Syracuse. Um, but I think that also depends on sort of the health of 
Seabell Flemister. We don't. Brian Kelly said after the game that he didn't think the injury was very, very serious, um, but we'll see if that remains true beyond the bye week. Um, I think that Notre Dame's offense certainly is, is having more success passing the ball, but I still think they're going to continue to rely on Kyron. He's going to have those opportunities as long as he um, sort of gets control of his fumbling issues. Um, I think he should be able to hit the over with um, maybe averaging close to 100 yards per game the, the last three games, which he is on the season. I think he's averaging about 97 yards per game. Next one I have first is more points against Notre Dame. North Carolina in the first half or Syracuse for the entire game? Well, North Carolina's averaging 43 points a game, basically. Syracuse is around 18. Uh, but I don't think Syracuse is going to get to 18 points against <laughs> Notre Dame. Uh, I, you know, is North Carolina, you know, how much are they going to score in the first half? I, I think Notre Dame is going to try to slow that game down. They're going to try to use their, you know, kind of magic formula of ball control and try to keep the possessions and the score and the plays down for North Carolina. I still think North Carolina is going to end up with more points in the first half. I'll say like 14, because I don't know that Syracuse is going to break 10 against Notre Dame. So a long way of saying North Carolina is my answer. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to side with you as well. I think North Carolina um, will score um, over a dozen points or so in the first half. And I think that that's probably enough to beat the entire total for Syracuse. Um, so I, I'm going to go North Carolina as well. Um, though I, I do think the, what you mentioned in terms of slowing the game down, I think Notre, Notre Dame's defense tends to start pretty well. Um, and then I think the, the offenses maybe make some adjustments and Notre Dame has to sort of counteract those. But so I think UNC could start slow offensively, but I still think that they'll probably score more points in the first half than Syracuse will the entire game. Next one is more yards against Notre Dame. Wake Forest in the second half or Syracuse for the entire game? Well, again, Syracuse is way down there in total offense. They're fourth or fourth from the bottom right now at 263.8. Wake Forest averages 4473. I mean, the, the trick is I think the math – problem where I would show my math on this is <laughs> that Notre Dame, if they're up, are probably going to substitute knowing that Clemson will be next in the ACC championship game. And that's an opportunity for Wake Forest to maybe get some garbage yards. So I'm going to say, I'm going to say Clark Lee will still with the second stringers will say, no, no, Wake Forest, you're not getting the garbage yards. So I'll go with Syracuse on that. Well, I, I think I did a good job because it seems like I made you think about this one, and you caught on to my 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 kind of theory there with the with the Wake Forest um, second half maybe being an opportunity for Notre Dame to get some rest. But I still think that it will be it will be Syracuse um, that gets more yards. I don't know that it's going to be a ton of yards for for either of those teams, but. Um, Maybe Clark Lee wants to be especially stingy against the two of his previous coaching stops in Wake Forest and Syracuse. Uh, but I, I think that um, Syracuse has a chance to also get pretty lopsided and maybe that they can get some yards in the second half of that game that they probably wouldn't get otherwise, even if they don't end up scoring a lot. 
And last question I have for us is who will intercept more passes in the next three games, Notre Dame's defensive backs or Notre Dame's linebackers? Um, I know that the linebackers have the edge right now, which is kind of interesting. It's stunning. It's stunning. Yeah. <laughs> well, the Kyle Hamilton doesn't have like eight at this point. <laughs> no. seems crazy, and yet he has been so good in coverage. You know, he's had pass breakups, and he's also – where people just won't throw at him, you know, where they go, okay, let's right. try something else here. I still think it's going to be the defensive backs. I think they're just too good at this point. I think Nick McLeod's experience of playing a lot of these teams before is going to help him. Um, you know, Lewis is getting better and better. It, it, you know, Bracey played some in that game. It seems like Lewis is the preference right now. I just think they're going to those. And you're also playing teams that, don't protect their quarterback very well. None of those three teams does. So um, I'll go with the DBs. Yeah, I think there should be some good opportunities for interceptions in the, these last three games. Um, it, it is kind of crazy that Notre Dame's linebackers, which have three interceptions, is more than Notre Dame's defensive backs, which have two. Um, and that Kyle Hamilton doesn't even have a single interception. This is maybe the single most uh, – <laughs> biggest upset of the season so far with that he has not yet intercepted a pass, but I think uh, that he will probably have a couple um, in these last couple games. Um, Nick McLeod has probably had more chances at interceptions than even Kyle Hamilton has and hasn't been able to convert on them. So I think they're going to be able to come through here, even though they haven't necessarily so far. Um, and uh, I think that, I don't know that it's going to be – I think it might be close, um, but I do think the defensive backs will finally kind of take the lead in, in, in the interception category just to close the season. All right, now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys – are we done with USC? Everybody's – you guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at TJamesNDI and Eric's at EHansonNDI. First one we have, Eric, is from at Jeff ND fan. And he said, when we asked for discussion topics, he said, maybe the election, religion, or how about Phil playing mad? Um, I, I certainly don't want to talk about politics or religion, but I do want to get your thoughts on the ABC broadcast of the game and how much time they spent on Phil. Uh, was it overdone? What did you learn? Um, and is it okay for Phil to have wanted to beat Notre Dame? Well, they, they definitely try to pull, even um, religiousize the <laughs> calling it the Holy War. It was the Holy War. Yeah, yeah. So, I don't know. First of all, I, I didn't think they did a great job, to be honest with you. I like Todd Blackledge a lot. I just didn't think it was, as a crew, their best game. I, I you know – I thought that they overdid the 93 angle. They they led with it. Okay, that's fine. But then they replayed it when I think Notre Dame was up three or four touchdowns. <laughs> and it's like, why are we doing this at this point? It, they And the whole Phil Jakovic thing, you know, Phil's playing mad. Well, you know what? I mean, I, you know, just because he's playing well doesn't mean necessarily he's playing mad. I pointed out on Twitter that's – Sebo Flemister was madder than Phil was because uh, yeah. he was like knocking people over like crazy. So I, I thought at some point they needed to move on from that angle a little bit more too. 
because it started not to be the story. The story started to be Ian Book and this incredible breakout performance from Ian Book and putting two really impressive performances in a row and maybe what this meant for Notre Dame in the bigger picture. I think they just kind of stuck on the Phil Jerkovic thing too long. Uh, so that would be my critique of that. Yeah, I think the untold story will probably always be how Ian Book feels about all of this. I imagine he probably has some feelings, and it doesn't seem to me that the Ian Book, Phil Jerkovic relationship is quite like the Ian Book, Brandon Wimbush relationship, where Brandon seemed to defer to Ian and, and was totally fine with how it played out. And obviously it played out differently for those in those situations, but um, I think those two guys are pretty close still, and, and Brandon doesn't have sort of any – hard feelings about Ian where it seems like maybe Phil uh, has the other way around. And, and, I, and I think Ian probably was pretty, pretty uh, happy to have performed that well in a game against Phil Dracovic and, and become the storyline in a game when so many people wanted to talk about, it's about Phil going into that game. So um, I, I didn't watch the broadcast because I was at the game and I tend to uh, <laughs> keep the broadcast on mute when I'm rewatching the game, just because I'm sort of rewinding a lot and it gets sort of repetitive, but um, I, I thought – I know there were a lot of uh, – there was a lot of uh, people chiming in on Twitter of what they thought about the broadcast, so I wanted to get your perspective of that. No, uh, the next question is from at Joey Salvatore. What were the three unsportsmanlike penalties against Notre Dame about? I, I literally saw Skoranek flex on the defensive back after he scored his first touchdown. That was it. I'm not even sure if the flags on Hayes and Bauer were shown on TV. The offici- officiating in this game was absolutely awful. You know, I'm going to defer to you maybe here a little bit because you've reviewed it, or maybe you have reviewed it. I'm assuming you have. <laughs> um, I, I thought Bowers was unnecessary roughness. I don't remember what Hayes' was for. Yeah, but Bauer, Bauer actually had – his penalty was face mask. He, did, he wasn't called for an unsportsmanlike conduct. Okay. Uh, the, third, the third one was on Sebo. Okay. So, you know, I, I, it was a chippy game, and, and that game could tend to do it. I didn't think the refs had the best game. Um, there were some things that I was a little bit confused about, uh, but at least they didn't do the replay 8,000 times to death on every every play either. So maybe they were intimidated by the fake crowd noise. Yeah, I, I the sometimes sometimes like good or decent officiating can be made to seem worse by the broadcast where they don't show you what happened. So you don't, you don't get a chance to see it. Like I know people were pretty perplexed about the Bo Bauer face mask penalty. And I'm not a hundred percent sure that he did grab the the player's face mask when he was in coverage, but from the live view, you can kind of see him reach out and and it looked like his hand was towards the guy's head. So maybe he grabbed his face mask, but then they showed a replay, which did not show like it was, it was not a helpful angle at all. Um, and so I think people just assumed it didn't happen because they didn't have a good angle of it. But that could have just been a, a product of them not having the right angle to show show the show the audience what happened. Um, I think that's the case with some of these unsportsmanlike penalties. Sebo, um, after I think he I think he got a first down on a at, on, on his run, and then after the run, he was he was pointing at the Boston College sideline for something. I'm not sure what or why, but I think. At that point, especially with was advising them to put on their mask, <laughs> with the, with it being the third unsportsmanlike penalty, I think the the refs were trying to keep things under control and didn't want it to get more chippy than it already was. Um, I, I I I like when guys celebrate. I think Ben kind of did it in that guy's face, and so I think that's always going to to draw a flag. Um, and then 
the Dalen Hayes one, I didn't really see what Dalen Hayes did, but I know from being at the game, Notre Dame's defense was charged up. There were guys coming off the f- or onto the field. That was a fourth down stop, um, and they were sort of celebrating on the field. And so I thought maybe they might get penalized for too many men, like a sideline warning or something uh, for coming onto the field after a change of possession. But um, I, I remember seeing Maris Lufa was waving at someone. I don't know. Like there was a lot of talk, a smack being talked. So I think that had something to do with it. I don't know what Dalen Hayes did specifically, but – it, it wasn't surprising to me that someone uh, uh, following that play got, got called for an, an unsportsmanlike penalty. So I, I don't know that the officiating was as bad as maybe the TV broadcast lent itself to be. Um, but I, it was very interesting to see sort of how chippy Notre Dame was. Um, and I think that I don't know how much related that is to Phil Dracovic, but I think they um, kind of wanted to show um, Ian that they had his back and they, they wanted to beat Phil Dracovic just as bad as anyone else did. Uh, next question we have is from Bob Carroll at B Carroll three. Why do why do the special teams seemingly struggle with onside kicks? It's always a white knuckle ride. Well, I think um, one of the reasons is that the announcers didn't know the rule about uh, fair catching the ball, uh, which Bo Bauer had raised his hand to try to get a fair catch on the second one. But I think, by and large, I mean, they, there's been, they kind of look rickety on those. Um, and I think some of it is not making excuses for them is when you've had this year with COVID um, and you didn't have spring practice, you have to make choices about how you spend your time in practice. And certainly special teams are important, but I think there's been times where you've had to sacrifice that a little bit to do some install or to get better chemistry on one side of the ball or the other. And, and maybe special teams took a little bit of a backseat uh, on that. But, you know, in the, I think Isaiah Pryor kind of had the right idea. He just didn't execute. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, plucking that out of the air. So uh, that, you know, but I know that there's been other times, I think in what was it the Louisville game where they looked, completely surprised by the yeah yeah there, there's there's got to be something on film that opposing coaches feel like they can take advantage with this with the surprise onside kicks um I, i'm curious that like when the when this happened twice now where the team has has recovered it but they they committed a penalty by blocking with the guys before the ball in 10 yards i don't know if that's notre dame's uh kick return team being shrewd and knowing that they can't be blocked and sort of letting themselves getting blocked or if they're just – it's just the other team's just not executing it well and they keep messing up, um, which you think the uh, the kickoff team would be well aware of the rules since it's already happened against Notre Dame before. Um, so it's hard for me to get a, t- a true sense of that. But I, like you said with Isaiah Pryor, at least they – he recognized what was going on, did what he was supposed to do. He just didn't actually execute and didn't make the play. Um so Notre Dame's front line must must bail pretty quickly, and that that probably gives the kickoff team a, a, an opportunity, a window into there to try to get an onside kick. Um, it, it's it's a bit surprising to me how many linebackers they have on the Haynes team. Um, Bo Bowers out there, uh, Jack Kaiser's out there, um, Shane Simon's out there, um, and so Bo made the right play in terms of making the fair catch and and sort of taking advantage of a rule that many people don't necessarily consider. Um, which makes it, I think, as a viewer, you're, you're kind of nervous because it looks like, oh, shoot, Boston College just fielded that, but they broke the rules and that they, they jumped up in front of Bill Bauer, who had signaled for a fair catch. 
Um, so they can't do that when the ball bounces as high as it did like that. So um, it, it's, it's tough. It, it, you don't know if Brian Pullian's teaching these guys well and they're, 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 they're following the rules right or if they're just catching some lucky breaks here. Um, but it's certainly uh, adding some stress to, to games at moments that you wouldn't, uh, wouldn't want there to be added stress. So we'll see uh, how that, how that uh, kind of turns out uh, the rest of the season. But I think, I mean, if, if you're an opposing team, you got to try one of those on, surprise onside kicks like once every game, don't you? I think you feel like it seems like there's an opportunity there, especially if you're, you're an underdog and you, and you, I thought it was a great time for that, that Boston college went for it. Cause that, that really could have put the momentum in their favor if they would have executed it uh, on that, but they, they weren't able to, to do it as well as they had hoped. Next question is from Brent Leonard at Burt2834. How much has Coach Reese influenced Coach Kelly in regards to letting players play through their mistakes? I think this is more of a Reese versus Long thing than it is a Reese influencing Kelly. Um, you think about how Reese is in practice, which we didn't see a lot of him as an offensive coordinator practice. We saw it one day. Um, but seeing him in practice as a quarterback's coach, you know, he's more level-headed, calm. You know, Chip was off off the rails in practice. And he even – Chase Claypool told me that um, Chip used to threaten to move him to defense whenever he made a mistake. <laughs> and Chase was like, bring it on. <laughs> um, so um, – and, and I think in terms of – you know, keeping personnel in a game, I think that's usually more the coordinators and the position coaches making those decisions. I mean, I guess Brian Kelly could say, get him out of there. Yeah. Um, uh, maybe with a quarterback, he would do that, but but not with a certain running backs. I don't think Brian is micromanaging to that level. So I think it's just more the demeanor of uh, Tommy Reese and his decisions rather than him, you know, giving Brian Kelly a chill pill. Yeah, and I think if, if someone is going to be the guy that says get him out of there, it, it'll probably be Brian Kelly and not um, not Tommy Reese. Um, whereas I think Chip Long may have done like we saw in the uh, the Louisville game in the season over yeah. last year. Kyron Williams went out there and made a mistake, and then you didn't see Kyron Williams basically for the rest of the season in a meaningful moment at running back. Um, so I, and I, maybe, I mean, maybe that was Lance Taylor, but I, I, I don't, I don't know that for sure. Um, but I, I think that's a good question in terms of, uh, the difference and what kind of influence Tommy Reese has had on Brian Kelly. Certainly I think winning makes all, all this easier. Um, and if the person that's making the mistakes is clearly better than his backup, um, he's going to get more chances to mess up. So whether it's Kyron Williams fumbling a few times, um, mm -hmm. Ian Book had, I mean, even when Ian Book is struggling, he wasn't turning the ball over much. Um, certainly he has had a few issues with the fumble against Clemson, but, um, and he threw the interception early against Duke. Um, but I, I think that they're, they're, they're confident in the guys that they have out there, even if they are making mistakes. Um, and so I think that that plays a big role in it as well. Next question is from at Brett Kovach. With how well the receivers and book have been playing the last few weeks, do you think the early season struggles were due to the messed up offseason and a lack of chemistry? Um, I would say there's a lot to that. I, I would say a lot of it is that. The one thing that I would add is I think Ian Book is playing better than I've ever seen him play. 
And so you have to also give him credit uh, beyond that. I mean, his decision-making, his poise, his kind of resolve in that. I'm, I mean, that Boston College game was just amazing for me to watch because no matter how many fumbles Notre Dame had, no matter what was going wrong, he was like, okay, don't worry about it. We're going to take care of this, and he did. Yeah, and he told Jay Bramble he could stay on the sidelines because they don't need a punter today. Um, I think uh, I, it's interesting because I, I feel like we were trying to sort of talk through this and sort of explain this, uh, even though there were plenty of reasons to be frustrated about how the passing game looked to start the season. But <laughs> I think when we were saying it then, it seemed more like an excuse. And now uh, when things are going better, it, it's more welcome as an explanation. So I think the perspective has changed just because of the outcome has, has, has improved. Um, and and we, didn't, we didn't know for sure that it was going to get better, but we thought that there was a chance that it could. Um, and that certainly – you can't separate that from Ian Book's improvement. He, he can be an inconsistent quarterback at times, and he certainly hasn't been the last two games. Um, I think not just it being a weird offseason and the lack of chemistry, but just the injuries they were dealing with and the uncertainty that that brought at the position in, a, in a, such a weird offseason is – they didn't know who, who was going to be lining up out there. So as soon as you start getting comfortable with Kevin Austin Jr., he gets hurt. As soon as you start uh, showing the chemistry that you had with Ben Skoranek, he gets hurt in the first game of the season. Braden Lindsey can't stay on the field. Uh, so it's just it's, it's made it more challenging for Ian Book. Lawrence Keys. Yeah, and Lawrence Keys. So when he's trying to establish a rapport with these guys um, that, he didn't, that he didn't have to rely on as much last season – um, it's been made that much harder because even the guys that he has to rely on this season aren't always the same people. So um, I think that's kind of what we thought could be happening. We didn't know for sure if that was how it would play out because you needed to see improvement. But I think that has the improvement has certainly uh, lent some credence to that explanation of why it was, was so uh, so bad early in the season. Next question is from Josh Milton at Domer Colts fan on a scale of where – on a scale where one is losing a reserve defensive lineman and 10 is losing Ian Book for the season, where does the Jarrett Patterson injury rate? Can you talk talk me off the ledge? <laughs> I love when I have that responsibility. <laughs> um, you know, and, and Notre Dame's reserve defensive linemen are actually pretty important. I mean, losing Jason Adam Alola is not ideal, um, although they sounds like they will get him back you know, here in December at some point. Um, I, you know, I'm not great at these math questions. I said a seven because I think there is a reasonable replacement. It's not a uh, finished product replacement. I do think that they're going to end up going with Zeke Corral um, just because it just seems to make the most sense. And I think he'll get better uh, and grow into being that. And, and if Brian Kelly is, you know, I had asked him about the backup defensive lineman oh, a few weeks ago who was impressing him. I mean, Zeke Carell was one of the first names he mentioned. And so that's good enough for me. Again, we don't get to see practice, but um, so seven. I can't wait to hear what Tyler's math gave. <laughs> I, I, I didn't do any complicated math, and I'm not that far off from you. I went with the six. Um, I think Patterson was playing really well. Um, and there's certainly un, certainly uncertainty of how good the backup will play. Um, but I think if we got to go back to last year and 
Uh, I think Jeff Quinn deserves credit for how well Trevor Ruland and Josh Lug played when needed at the end of last season. Um, and so if he can have similar type of success with um, the backup center, and I, I tend to believe it would be Zeke Carell, um, I, I would be a little disappointed if it isn't um, because I feel like you should be able to get him ready to play in this situation. Um, but we'll, we'll see if, if, if it is Zeke Carell, if it's someone else, if it's Colin Grunhardt, or if they do – Move, move someone else down to center. I, I, I would be the least interested in moving someone around. Um, I, 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 think, uh, I think that they should be in a good spot with either Zeke Carell or Colin uh, to, to get those guys out there. Um, and, and I think it, it helps so much to, this, to the center and, and to ease the concern um, by everything that's surrounding the center position. The, the four other offensive linemen, they've been through a lot. Um, Ian Book um, can can make up for any sort of recognition issues that the offensive line um, would have been relying on for Jarrett Patterson, and those guards can help as well. So I think certainly it's going to rely a lot on how well this 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 fill-in plays. Um, but I think this this isn't a, a, a stand on the ledge moment, so you can step off that ledge, my friend. Uh, the next question is from John. DePasquale at JS DePasquale. Yes or no, will ND win its second Joe Moore Award in four years? That's a hard yes or no question because it's going to depend on Zeke Carell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I will say um, I was looking at their calendar. They're going to have narrow it down to mid-season uh, standouts <laughs> here pretty soon. Yeah. I mean, I think – the second Clemson game, provided that both teams end up in the ACC championship game, is going to be a big measuring stick. One of the, I mean, really the litmus test that people were, or people really start jumping on Notre Dame's bandwagon with the offensive line thing was how well they did in the Clemson game. Uh, so if they're able to have somewhat near of that performance, and by then Zeke Corral would be in his fourth game as a starter. So, okay, if I have to say yes or no, I'll say yes. Yeah, I think unless things go terribly wrong in the next few games, it's, it's going to be a yes. Uh, the narrative plays in Notre Dame's favor that it's been, that was able to get over the hump against Clemson, and the offensive line had a lot to do with that. Um, Kyron Williams, we expect to still finish out the season strong, and the way the running game is playing, I think that will go a long way in, in convincing uh, Joe Moore Award voters uh, that this is – that, that Notre Dame will be the winner. I think Alabama will have a good argument, um, but right now I think Notre Dame um, is in the driver's seat, certainly, to, to win the award. Next one, uh, continuing on the offensive line from at Mr. Fantasy 20, who do you think will be the starting five on the offensive line next year? Also, assign a percent chance for each of the following next year with Blake Fisher and Rocco Spindler. Neither start, one of the two start, or both start. Again, going back to who Brian Kelly singled out as the top backups, and I kind of had him kind of project forward, you know, obviously Patterson would be one of the starters. If right. if Aaron Banks is back, he's a starter. And then you start to fill in the other guys. I think it would be Josh Lug, Zeke Carell, and, um, and Andrew Kostofik. That was the other person that Brian brought up. Now – 
exactly where they line up. Does Banks play left tackle and Lug play guard? Is Lug a tackle? Does Andrew Kristoffic play left tackle and Lug play right tackle? I think some of those things have to be figured out. If And so then the second part of the question, I tried to get my math to add up to 100%, <laughs> but it didn't. Um, <laughs> I, I think that there's a 1% chance that both those guys play or start as freshmen, and it would take Aaron Banks leaving and a bunch of injuries for that to happen. Um, I don't think we're going to be dealing with COVID next year, so I don't think that we have to factor that in. I think we would have, we'll have vaccines and other things going on there. Um, that one starts, I put it at 20% in part because – if Banks left, that provides an opportunity. I think Rocco Spindler is special, um, but I don't think if Banks leaves that that's going to happen. And then that neither – then I went with 80%. So I had 101%. Um, so I will get us rulers on my knuckles, I guess, uh, for yeah. not adding up to 100. The, the offensive line – Projection for next year is so hard because we haven't seen practice this year. Um, so we just don't know where the progression is at from our own point of view. Um, I'm, I'm in the camp that Aaron Banks won't come back. I, I don't have a necessarily any evidence or reason to support that. I just think that it seems like a good year to go. Uh, unless, unless, he, unless there's something about him really wanting to come back and be the leader on the offensive line. If he really wants to do that, then I think there's a good case for him to come back. The thing is, he's not that highly rated individually, you know, as a guard. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I know there's thought, well, what if you move him out to tackle? Could that help? I guess I, 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 it could. I, I'm, not, I'm not totally sold on how well that would, that would work out for him. I, I don't know if, if he goes out and plays tackle and then doesn't play well, then maybe that rules him out as being a tackle in the NFL and maybe – Maybe people could still wonder that if he goes into the draft this year, but I, I, I think so. So I, so I made my offensive line under the assumption that Aaron Banks wasn't coming back. Um, now, certainly, I, I wouldn't say I would be surprised if he did come back. Uh, that I'm not that certain about it either way. Um, so at left tackle, I put Kristoffic. Uh, although I'm, 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 Quinn Carroll's the guy that I really would have liked to see this year because we didn't get to see him last year because of his knee injury. Um, so I, I really liked him as a recruit, so I'm curious where he's at in his development. Um, and I, I thought if Banks isn't back, maybe they bring back Dylan Gibbons and he could be a guy that play, starts at left guard um, to bring back a, more of a veteran presence. I know we, we like to sort of cast off those older players that don't play a lot, um, but if they're going to be losing so much on this offensive line for next year, um, that maybe, maybe that's something Jeff Quinn is interested in. Um, then Jared Patterson back at center, Zeke Carell at right guard, and then Josh Lug at right tackle. So that's that's my prediction, but I would take that with a grain of salt for sure. Um, in terms of the – I'm taking it with a grain of salt. <laughs> All right. You can even take it with a grain of pepper if you want. I don't I don't mind. Um, in terms of the, the freshmen, I don't think there's a very good chance that either of them start. Um, so I went neither with 75%. One starts with 20%. And I guess – I would want clarity. Are we talking about one game for the entire season? Or are we talking about being a starter as when the season starts? Um, and then in terms of bowl starting, I went with five because I, I wanted mine to add up to a hundred because that just didn't seem right to me, Eric. So I, 
I, I went with 5% there. But 1% might actually be a better, better actual odds in terms of both of those guys starting next year. Um, next question is from Chris Buckley at Topher15. What are the plans for the players after exams and heading into the holiday break? Will they be returning home for any of the holidays? Will the team be more or less isolated alone on campus? Well, I initially took it as holiday break as Thanksgiving, and they have a game on Friday, so they're not going anywhere uh, except for North Carolina. Um, and then – When he said any of the holidays, that, that, made, that I think that opened it up to, to Christmas as well. And Hanukkah too? And Hanukkah as well, yeah, of course. Okay, and and Boxing Day. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's just not going to be time. I, I think I had this question in a chat phrased differently. You know, they're going to have games through December 19th, and then you would play either January 1st or January 2nd. So you're not even going two full weeks from the ACC championship game to playing – in a national semifinal or the orange bowl. Um, and then to send people home just doesn't make any sense because then you risk the COVID um, yeah. spread. And, and at this point you've been through too much. So I think you have to just kind of put that off until after you're done playing football, then you can send the kids home before they start the second semester. Um, and yeah, they'll be in their bubble. You know, they'll be kind of like they're used to that. They'll be like it was in the summertime where there's not other students on campus. South Bend will still be hopping. Um, there'll still be, you know, people in South Bend, so it won't be a ghost town. But yeah, they're, they're going to be um, in their bubble and it's going to be a little bit easier for them to stay healthy as long as they stay disciplined. Yeah, and I... I mean, they'll also, I mean, when they're on campus and the students are there, there'll still be other athletes. So it won't be just the football team. So that, that, uh, that'll add some more people there. And obviously those athletes will, will be on their, will be trying to be on their best behavior to stay COVID free as well. So it's, it's, it's tough. I, it's hard to imagine this, and, uh, for how tough of a year this has been for them to basically been, been in this since June um, in such a, a tough circumstance to have to go through the end of the year like that is, is asking a lot. And uh, I cer certainly uh, they deserve as long as a break as they want after the season is done, in my opinion. Um, but I, I, yeah, I think it's just the way it's going to be. I don't know that Notre Dame can risk sending guys home and letting them go home. Um, so I, I think that's, it's, I think it's going to fall upon Notre Dame to come up with ways to, to sort of alleviate that. Maybe there's something they can do to make, Make, make have their families involved in something. I don't know whether it's some sort of virtual banquet or something like that, um, because normally in December is when the the awards banquet would occur, and I don't even know, I don't even know that they have time for that with the way the the turnaround is going to be this year. So maybe that maybe they save that to January after the season, um, and I, even when that happens, I I wouldn't imagine they would do it in person. Um, so uh, uh, that's going to be uh, an interesting. Interesting and a challenging time for these guys, and I think that's part of why this bye, bye week comes at such a good time because it is getting to that point of the season where guys are probably getting worn out, especially with finals week, um, to, to get a break and catch their breath. Um, because that's I was I was talking about it before the season started. I said I think you have to be worried about how these guys are going to be holding up when it comes to November and December because this is going to be a long, it's going to feel like a longer season than any of them have probably experienced before, um, just because of how abnormal it has been and the, the pressure on them to, to stay 
um, out of trouble and out of out of COVID situations and uh, not getting many chances to sort of let loose. So I think uh, it's going to be interesting to see how Notre Dame sort of navigates this, but it's going to be the same situation for everyone else. I think especially teams that aren't in it like Notre Dame is, the commitment level for these teams that are, are, aren't playing for much at the end of the year, um, how, how how well are they going to be behaving? How, how well are they going to do in terms of navigating, staying out of circumstances where they could um, – be in contact tracing or, or contract COVID. So um, it, it's we're in for a, a probably a wild finish to the year for for college football because it's going to be it's going to be interesting. Even if they played in the national championship on January 11th, too, this is the the second semester has been delayed. So they usually they go back in the middle of January. That classes don't start until February 3rd for spring semester. So they will be able to get some kind of time off even if they play all the way deep into middle of January yeah and I wonder if they maybe don't start spring football as early as they would in the past uh, but we can we can worry about that when it comes to next year uh, next question I have for us is um, from Baba Ganoush at PLACT underscore ITFDB with the COVID spikes nationwide if the season were canceled for all teams today is there a contingency plan as far as a final ranking or would 2020 results be removed from the record books altogether? Um, well, I, you know, I'll say right off the top, Baba Ganoush, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> I think that they're going to play a playoff at, at all costs, whether they let's, if they had to postpone it, you know, until February or March, I think they would do that. Again, we're in a cycle where, if these Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, if the final readout is as promising as the initial readout, we can kind of start to see the finish line on, on the, we believe on, on COVID. And so, um, you know, the numbers are going to get better here at some point. And, and so if, if you had to kick it to spring, to finish it, they would. But I think they're going to just get through it. I think people just now are you're going to get through it. When I looked at Notre Dame's testing numbers today, it looks like only 58 guys are testing right now out of all the scholarship guys and the walk-ons. That means there are that many players, you know, over 50 players that have had COVID that right now are quote-unquote in that temporary at least immune phase. So I just think they're going to get to the end of the season, whatever it looks like it's going to look like. They, they, they've worked too hard to not finish it at this point. Yeah, I, I think I'll buy into the hypothetical. I, I, the results would certainly still count. Um, they're not going to remove the results from the record books. <laughs> um, I'm guessing the AP would probably name a national champion. Um, you would probably have more insight to anyone than, uh, on that because you're a voter. Um, Absolutely we would. And, and then if, if this were the case where there were just – there was no more games played, I, I don't think the college football playoff would – I don't know that they – maybe they would deem a national championship off of their own rankings. I'm not sure how that would work. Um, that would be obviously more unprecedented. Obviously, the AP used to vote uh, and have a bigger say in the national champ- – who was recognized as the national champion. Uh, so um, I don't know how that would play off with the – play out with the playoff. Um, and certainly we hope that doesn't, that, that isn't the case. 
Last one I have for us is from Irish at Irish Zibby. Question I forgot to ask last week: Which record-breaking performance at Notre Dame Stadium was more impressive, Denard Robinson in 2010 or DJ Uyangalale last weekend? I'm going to say DJ Uyangalale. Lale. Let me try that one more time. DJ Uyangalale. Yeah. And here, here, here's why. DJ did it in in a lot more pressurized situation against a much better team and a much better defense than that 2010 um, Notre Dame defense. The reason Charlie Weiss was fired was because he could never get the defense to a respectable level. They had offensive players coming out the wazoo on his teams. And so Brian Kelly, that was where his biggest rebuilding project was on the defensive side of the ball. I mean, Shoelace's numbers in that game were incredible. I mean, he rushed for 258 yards and two touchdowns, and he had 240-some yards passing, 24 of 40 in the air. But, you know, that Michigan team was a 7-6 and six team, and, and a lot of that wasn't Denard's fault. It was uh, their defense was 110th. Uh, but, again, you got to look at context, and DJ did it against one of the best defenses, a defense that's ranked 12th in the country in total defense right now. So, DJ gets my vote. Yeah, this was a tough one for me because – Because you're a Michigan fan. The, the, the thing that it – that uh, unbalanced it – because I think, obviously, DJ did it against a much better defense. But Nard <clears throat> Robinson had so little talent around him. He, he I mean, he was their only hope of winning that game um, – and, 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 and playing to that level was, was so difficult. Um, to me, the, the DJ, DJ's numbers weren't that – to me, it was actually more surprising that uh, 439 passing yards was a record against ND. I mean, given the way the modern college football has gone, you, you would think that someone had, would have done that against Notre Dame before. Um, 439 yards is certainly a lot of yards, but there have been crazy numbers over the years in, in passing games. But I, I still – think I will lean towards DJ Uyunglele just because there was so little evidence that he could do something like that, um, even though he had a lot of talent around him, um, even though he was a five-star recruit. But to be able to do that and to keep your your team in the game um, when your best offensive player was basically wiped out of the game and, and, and nullified and, and the whole game was sort of put on him, uh, I think that was probably the more impressive performance. All right, that's it for today's episode of Pot of Gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. We're hoping to hit 200 ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, so if you listen to us over there uh, and you haven't already, go ahead and drop us a line. Uh, We'll be back next week to look ahead at Notre Dame, North Carolina. Stick with ndinsider.com. Until then, for all your off-week coverage needs.